It's time for episode 52 of the Clockwise Podcast from your pals at IDG, recorded September 3rd, 2014. Clockwise, four guests, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Welcome to Clockwise, a podcast that's running out of time. Only one man can save the day, and that man is my co-host, Dan Warren. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. I didn't realize that's a, that's a lot of responsibility. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. I'm running out of things to say in the opening line, so I thought I'd go with something <laughs> dramatic. I like it. I'm a fan. Uh, to my left uh, on our on our show today, one of our two fine guests is Susie Oaks of Tech Hive. Hello. Welcome back. Hi. Thank you. And to my left is our other fabulous guest, senior editor for Macworld, Chris Breen. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Since I introduced everything, I'm going to go first. Here's my topic. Uh, Obviously, big story over the last few days is this leak of celebrity images that uh, is apparently out of people's iCloud uh, photo libraries. And uh, so I wanted to start there, sort of an obvious topic, but I thought we should talk about it. Here's my spin on it, though. you know, we're putting personal data in the cloud when we do this, and there are lots of reasons to do it that are quite convenient. But at the same time, there are, you know, the fact is your data is going up onto a server controlled by somebody else, and you've got to take a lot on faith that the security systems will keep your data private. And I'm just curious, what are your personal boundaries when it comes to sharing personal data, whether it's a photo or a document or emails or whatever, putting personal things or sensitive things in uh in places that aren't the hard drive of your, you know, of your computer, essentially, what, what what are your boundaries? Do you do you have boundaries like that that you set, or do you not, Susie? What do you think? Um, well, this story has definitely made me rethink those boundaries. I've been pretty loose about what I'll put in the cloud. I think I got all my tax returns up there and all kinds of stuff that probably shouldn't be in cloud services that I'm not going to name. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, and I'm, it's weird because I'm very careful with what I put on social media. I have kind of different rules about, like, who can see this and which accounts are locked down and which accounts are public. But with the cloud, I'm kind of like, well, it's my cloud account, and that's how I keep everything synced and backed up. So I just throw it all in there, and I definitely need to be rethinking, like, should I be encrypting these things? I've been looking into stuff that will encrypt things before you put it in the cloud. Um, it seems like kind of a hassle. No one's really found like a really great way to do it yet. So, but yeah, I've d- this story has definitely made me realize that I'm putting too much trust into companies that you know consider security but don't consider like security first. Well, like Susie, I think I've definitely you know thought care you know rethinking this in the wake of these these hacks. Um, I had actually been tried to be very vigilant about things like tax returns in not having them backed up, but then again. You know, there's things like I use CrashPlan, right, to like back up all my hard drives online. And guess what? My tax returns are on my hard drive. (laughs) So that stuff's in the cloud. Now, whether or not that, you know, obviously how safe that is depends on CrashPlan servers and their encryption, et cetera. But there is, you know, the sort of maxim goes, there's basically no system so, so tightly encrypted or so tightly secured that it can't be broken into somehow. Um, And I think it is important to maintain a certain amount of, uh, vigilance, but also at the same time, 
I don't think you can protect everything. I mean, and there's so much, there's so many cases where that's out of your control. For example, all these breaches that we'd see at retailers for credit card information. I mean, you could stop using your credit card, but the whole point of a credit card is to give you some sort of purchase protection. Um, and it's not necessarily your fault unless you, you know, for, for having, losing that information if that information gets breached on the retailer side. So in some cases, there's, there's really only so much you can do. That said, obviously, it, it seems like it's really important to try and be uh, vigilant about the the really sensitive information. And obviously, when it comes to things like photos, as we're talking about here, a lot of these places have made it a lot harder because there are so many photos that we don't want to lose. You know, if you're taking photos of your kids or you're taking photos of like family occasions, you don't want to lose those photos. Those are sort of one of the primary things that services exist to back up. Um, but trying to deal with that duality of, well, there are sometimes photos that you don't want popping up everywhere or you don't want. I think we talked about this when PhotoStream first came out because the idea that you take a picture and it automatically syncs everywhere. Um, my favorite example was always, you know, if you have an Apple TV with a screensaver that pulls from your photo stream and you happen to snap some pictures, that could get very awkward very quickly. Um, so it's, it's, it's that eternal balance between convenience and security. Like Dan, I use CrashPlan. And so, yeah, I take that leap of faith that they're going to protect all my stuff because everything I have is, is in there. Um, otherwise, I'm mostly careful about my daughter's stuff. Um, I talk to her about security. I talk to her a lot about the kind of photos that she takes. Um, even as a small -er child, um, the idea that I didn't really want her face out there uh, being shared around to different services because I, I care about her privacy maybe a little bit more than I, I do mine. Um, and then there are certain things that I will not put specifically on there outside of crash plan, financial stuff. I don't do that. Um, I tend to, the pictures I put up tend to be pictures of the beach that nobody cares about. Um, but not, not personal pictures. I don't take pictures inside my house of my family and that kind of thing. Cause I think that's really for me and I don't want to share that with the rest of the world. I do have boundaries. I think they're not um, close in enough. I think I think this event has made all of us think about this. I really like the convenience, and, and, and the problem here is you're weighing this, like Dan said, against the risk of losing important photos that you don't want to lose. And, and, you know, I used to back up my photos onto, like, DVDs and move them off-site and things like that. And now I've got, like, multiple cloud backups, and I feel better about it. But at the same time, if my cloud backup service key got compromised or the encryption got compromised, if somebody broke into my iCloud account, they would get photos that way. And that's uh, – and I don't – you know, that's kind of scary because you can be as as obscure and as careful as possible. And if there's still – if there's a breach, it can affect you. Susie, uh, I think you have a related topic for your topic today, right? Yes, somewhat related. So next week, Apple is going to have their event and everyone thinks they're going to talk about the iPhone 6. And then um, they also previewed iOS 8 in June, so we'll probably hear more about that. And what part of iOS 8 that I'm really interested in is HomeKit because I cover connected home. Um, but now we've kind of everyone's sort of sour on the security thing right now. And it's a big topic. And I mean, it's one thing to have just computer files up in the cloud. But if you we're talking about cloud control of different devices around your home, I mean, there was some backlash when Google bought Nest. So. Do you guys think that this whole security thing and security being top of mind for a lot of consumers is going to affect the Internet of Things and like how soon it will be before people kind of can trust that these companies are thinking security first enough that we'll let them, you know, 
uh, feeds from cameras in our house up in the cloud and controlled door locks and things like that. Yeah, it does kind of sound like the the stuff of, you know, like a bad science fiction thriller, right? Like, oh, now the, my house is being controlled by the cloud. I'm locked in. I would totally um, watch that. That's a I great feel like, science fiction thriller, Dan. Yeah. What are you talking about? I think I've seen that on like four different shows already, yep. though. Like somebody getting like drowned in a swimming pool or something because like there was a cover on it that got activated remotely. I don't know. It sounds like the kind of, yeah, you see that on TV. But I think I think what the thing is, that's always been a concern, but Susie's totally right that now it's in the it's a mainstream consciousness thing, um, and I think potentially it could be a good thing because I think those companies are going to realize that people are now thinking about that, and I think they're going to have to be really proactive about explaining why their technology is safe to use and why what precautions they've taken to prevent anybody from getting sort of illicit access to these things. But I, I do think it's, you know, it's something that's always made me sort of vaguely uncomfortable about, you know, including things like, oh, yeah, you, the idea of having like a webcam for surveillance in your house is is one thing. But then I thought about, you know, well, what other things might be caught on there that you don't want other people to see, even if it's just, you know, your personal life, right? You know, there's there are even everyday things like what time I come home or, you know, when I'm out of town, right? All these things are are concerning. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm not sure it'll delay the adoption of such things because I do think that a lot of the people who are sort of the bleeding edge consumers often think more about, oh, this is really cool than about maybe I should be worrying about where this is going. Um, but I do think it will be increasingly important for companies to sort of explain why their products are, are trustworthy. Um, and for me, I mean, all I've got right now is like a, uh, uh, thing that turns my light on and off at specific times. But so I guess, you know, if they start messing with that light, that could get annoying, but I <laughs> guess I wouldn't really worry about it too much. Um, but yeah, I I think we are sort of on that knife's edge right now of having to think about the implications of things and not just, hey, this is a really nifty piece of technology. Uh, warning, Macworld plug. Uh, in this month's issue of Macworld, I have the uh, lead editorial on the Apple TV as a home kit hub. And uh, the idea being that I think this is an opportunity for Apple and maybe some other companies as well, where they can start selling privacy as a feature. The gist of that piece is that the Apple TV serves as kind of a barrier to the uh, the rest of the world so that through it, all your devices, all the uh, smart devices in your home can talk to the Apple TV, but then that information is hashed, sent to Apple. So you've got one pipe going out to one company that hopefully you can trust versus 20 different devices speaking to 20 different companies. Not only would it set up uh, an easier configuration, but it also gives you some hope of controlling the privacy of your home. So I do think that this could be a feature that companies could offer up and say, look, we will be the guardian for all the information that's coming out of your home so that it isn't being spread across the entire world, but rather just to us. And you can, of course, trust us. Hmm. I, I, it's funny. These are all really interesting issues. For me, Dan mentioned it, the, the, where I'm drawing the line in this particular case, I have a drop cam. And um, I use it when we're not at home. I will plug it in and so that it's on when we're gone in case there's somebody who's coming in to feed the cat or there's uh, – you know, or in case somebody breaks into the house. And um, I will unplug it the moment that I get home. And it, just because the idea that somebody could, could know my – figure out my password – even though it's a strong password, or break into Dropcam's servers and get a recording, not just a live stream, but a recording of every conversation that happens in my living room, I am not comfortable with that. 
That that that's very clear. I'm somehow more comfortable with the idea that the nest knows when people are in the house and not in the house, or that when a light, a smart light bulb is turned on or not, is is available to the light bulb, you know, cloud server. That that bothers me less. So I I feel like there is there is a a line here, but I do think people will get spooked by by these breaches. And but boy, we're human beings. Convenience always seems to win out over nebulous ideas of of danger. <laughs> and so I feel like in the end, people are going to adopt this stuff anyway, even though just as we've adopted incredibly – taking incredibly personal pictures and having them sync to somebody's uh, cloud service because it's convenient. Yeah. I mean, I think even just holding these computers up to our heads and letting the, the radiation bounce into our brains yeah. has showed like bad judgment on our part. But it's, you know, it's great. Here. Everybody likes it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the, the average person's chance of getting hacked is pretty low. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I'll continue to use these things. But um, the, the cool thing I've been seeing in Connected Home as I'm working with these smaller companies is that some of them are kind of going security first and making trying to make that their, their differentiator and saying, um, I've mean, seen some cameras that as soon as you come home, like they, they can tell from your cell phone's home and they just shut down. And oh, you can turn great. them back on manually, but you don't have to. So you won't have to, you know, remember every time when you come in to unplug your drop cam. I'd love that. Yeah. So there's, and I think companies are going to be more transparent about what they're doing. Hopefully, the smaller companies know that that's kind of like where they can plant their flag. Um, a lot of them are launching through Kickstarter. So you kind of have to take their word for what they're <laughs> doing until the product comes out and you can really see. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a cool trend that I, I hope companies, the bigger companies, will be more transparent about what they're doing, and um, the smaller companies will continue to go security first and sell that as a feature. Well, to to leap a little bit off what Susie was talking about with the Apple event next week, one of the other things that's sort of making the rounds as a rumor is Apple might take it, you know, finally make a foray into mobile payments and using your smartphone to pay for things. Um, and I think this also kind of links into some of the other, uh, you know, topics we've been talking about in terms of security, uh, where, you know, the idea of having sort of using your phone to be able to wirelessly pay for things at stores um, seems really convenient, <laughs> but are there security concerns with storing payment information? Um, what do you guys think about, is this something that might be a compelling offering or is it not quite there yet? Or is it one of those things where, you know, it's time, all these breaches and, and security problems have showed us that it's time for some sort of change. So maybe this is the right moment for it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is we're getting a lot of hacking stuff in the news in the last year or so. That there are very smart people out there, and they would love nothing better than compromise point of sale systems. And certainly, if we are able to walk into a store and scan a um, a barcode with our phone, and then just walk out with it because we've paid for it versus uh, you know, or sorry, via NFC, great. That's terrific, but they would love to have that as a target as well. Get into these things and be able to spoof credit cards and buy a bunch of stuff or simply have access to those credit cards and that kind of data and then sell it to ne'er-do-wells somewhere in uh, who knows where. So I, I love the dream of this, that the convenience of this could be just great through iBeacon, through an iPhone, through whatever, being able to walk into a place and just get rid of retail people. What's, you know, altogether, I'm sorry, retail people and restaurant servers and um, and basically live a lonely life. But being able to get all your stuff anytime you want, it would be awesome. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know how safe it's going to be. Clearly, a lot needs to be done 
uh, in terms of security to protect uh, our financial stuff because we're seeing increasing numbers of hacks that people hadn't thought about a year ago, and now we're all suffering from them. I don't know how many times you guys have changed your credit cards in the last three years, but I've done it twice, and uh, and I'm pretty careful. Yeah, I I mean the the report that John Gruber referred to as a joke because that's what he does uh, was the idea that they're going to use the same kind of secure enclave technology that Apple uses to store fingerprint data in in order to store financial data. The idea that you'll have to unlock perhaps with your fingerprint and only only then will you get you know momentarily the NFC chip will come on and say here I'm a I'm a MasterCard, and then it'll go away again. And so they're, they're definitely um, – Apple's security on the fingerprint side has actually been pretty solid. They, they've done a pretty good job of, of locking that out from other, um, from other cases, and it's just storing sort of the math. And it'll be interesting to see if they can apply that to, to finances. I remember complaining on some podcast, and it may have been this one, about there occasionally I forget to bring my wallet to work, but I've got my smartphone, and it, dri- it drives me up a tree that – I've got my smartphone and yet I can't buy anything and I end up having to ask somebody to buy me lunch. Now, get the PayPal these, app. These days I've got yeah, the, the PayPal app. I I have uh, I loaded money on my Starbucks card and I have that app. Love it. So if I get really desperate, I can go buy something at Starbucks, but I I like the idea of having them, you know, a, a credit card or something that I can tap. And uh, that would be nice. That would be nice to get to that point. So I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Things are so insecure now financially in terms of credit card fraud that I'm not sure it can get any worse. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was exactly the point I was going to make is that credit cards are super insecure right now. Especially um, in the U.S. where there's yeah. no chip and pin. So it's all just numbers. And I read that they're rolling – they're going to they're gonna start rolling out chip and pin. Yep, so So – yeah, so any mobile payment thing that uses your already insecure credit card is kind of adding another layer of security, whether it's a PIN. Um, the PayPal app has you log into your PayPal, and then you know your bank is in there. So there's an extra kind of login layer there. Um, the Google Wallet app, I guess, uses a PIN. I don't know. I haven't tried it. But um, yeah, so any mobile payment thing is going to be inherently more secure than a credit card. And if your credit card information gets stolen, as long as you notice it and report it, you're not liable. So, I mean, I definitely want the companies to think security on this and to tell us what we're doing and explain to everybody, like, why they think it's safe and, um, you know, how they're trying to keep it protected. But, yeah, I've seen the convenience and I am so down. I use the Starbucks one all the time. The PayPal app is great. There's a ton of restaurants around our office that uh, accept the PayPal app and you can order ahead of time. And so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm totally down with mobile payments and I hope that they, they do a good job selling it because I'm a buyer. Yeah, I think, you know, Jason and Susie both touched upon the point of things are so bad already that I'm not sure it can get much worse. I mean, you, you know, that magnetic stripe reader, you can buy a, you know, like a $25 gadget that'll let you read the information right off it. And it's not encrypted as far as I know. Um, the chip and pin thing is slightly better, but as uh, I was talking to one of our contributors who knows a lot about these kinds of things, and he pointed out, the problem there is you can still compromise the readers, and if you're entering your pin anyways, then now it has the pin and the other information mm-hmm. potentially. So, you know, the question is, there's gradations of security, and the possibility with this sort of NFC-based payment is that it could be even more secure, which would be great. 
Um, and I'm, I'm very interested to see what it, what develops with that. My biggest sort of hesitation is that I think that the rollout, you know, and granted in San Francisco, I think where it's sort of a tech hotbed, there's a lot of opportunity for using these kinds of things. But, you know, even in a, in a fairly major city where I live, it's not fully rolled out there. I mean, so I'm still going to have to carry a wallet probably, but like in, in the case of Jason's where I forget my wallet, at least maybe I'll be able to get food somewhere, somewhere. and not starve to death. Well, and when someone the- electronically locks me out, of my house via the cloud. <laughs> One of the things about Apple getting on board with this, especially if it's NFC and it's also compatible with the NFC that's in so many Android devices, is this This could be the impetus. The, the this rollout, along, yeah. w- along with the change to uh, chip going and going to chip and pin this could actually be like a good moment where everybody realizes these are the new ways to pay for things and having apple be on board with it helps because that's been a whole class of devices that sure. have not been able to support this they, so, they've got yeah. a lot of clout and i think you know they're a big chunk of the market and moreover there are things like you know i've really enjoyed using passbook it took a long time for it to sort of catch on but there are definitely a bunch of things that i use it for yeah. regularly now yeah um and so you know it, it takes a little time for these things to get rolled out and it might not be immediately that we see mobile payments sort of developing into a big thing but um, you know, a couple years down the road when we're another one or two iPhones in and they all have this capability, <laughs> it's going to be very different. Yeah, Chris, it's your turn. At one time I wrote Macworld's Game Room column as I think everybody did. Yes, many of um, us have been through there. <laughs> you, me, Andy Anatko, Peter Cohen, Roman Loyola, yeah. the list goes on. It's killed many a person. It has. And the result of that is, even though this sounds like the greatest gig ever, it's the greatest gig ever if you're 14, but eventually you grow up. And uh, the result is that you never, ever play games again. So after about 15 years, I finally started playing games again. I got a PS4 and I've started using Steam on my um, Mac. I reactivated my account. I'm playing some of the old games that I used to play. But there's been a lot of news lately about in the console gaming world and, and some of the online gaming worlds where things are really ugly, that there are some questionable reviews being done by people who are on the take, and it's a pretty misogynistic, rough world. So I have not yet ventured out into playing uh, multiplayer games online. I tend to play single player because I feel safer that way. So the question to the group is, are you still playing games? Uh, Do you have any interest because of the next generation consoles? And what about online play? I always, um, my eyes are always bigger than my stomach when it comes to games. We, my, my kids are playing them and having kids in the house, Chris, I mean, this is, that makes it a lot easier. I and mean, we've got a Wii U yeah. now because of Mario Kart 8 and my kids love playing the Wii U because they used to play the Wii and they can still play those games on the Wii U. We have an Xbox 360. We've got a lot of last-gen consoles. We've got an Xbox 360 and my son loves playing games on that. We've got a PS3. We can play some games on that. I've been playing Destiny, the beta. I was playing that on that. Mm. I never spend enough time with it. I, I, I'm actually really liking over on, uh, see, we're plugging things now, uh, Chris. You started this. Uh, over on my <laughs> other podcast, The Incomparable, we we um, the, John Syracuse has introduced me to this concept of these these smaller games that are that are only you know two three four hours to play like Journey or Gone Home or Brothers and I really love those because I feel like that's enough game for me to get through it and enjoy it and it's more like watching a movie and when I p- tried to play The Last of Us uh, which is like twenty or thirty hours of gameplay and also relentlessly bleak and you're shooting people um, I just didn't I just couldn't do it I just didn't didn't like it but when i'm playing mario kart with my kids and you know that's that's fantastic and i love that too i just i I have a lot of investment in game hardware and i don't spend nearly as much time as i probably should but you know once games feel like an obligation then it's not fun anymore so 
I guess I'm just playing as much as I can. Yeah, I'm not really a console gamer or a PC gamer. Um, I, I play some kind of casual stuff on my phone. I don't do a lot of multiplayer. I like puzzle games and word games and games for old ladies, basically. So, um, yeah, the multiplayer playing online, um, you know, a lot of those genres don't really appeal to me. I'm not into RPGs or first-person shooters. And if I was, I don't think I'd want to play them against strangers. I mean, I remember, like, even when Draw with Friends came out and I was like, oh, yeah, none of my friends are playing it yet. Let me play against a stranger. The very first drawing, he, like, drew something rude. And I was just like, the yeah. very yeah. first oh, one? Cool. Come on, it's you guys. Like, I, yeah. I, tried, I, I bought an Xbox and played the original Halo, and I played online for, like, 10 minutes. And after hearing a lot of high-pitched 12-year-old boys saying horrible things, I just yanked out the headset because it was just yep. not. Yeah, and these gamer games stories that are coming out are just disgusting so it's I, I don't feel like it's it's made for me and I'm gonna stay far away from online multiplayer gaming for the time being but I look forward to playing Mario Kart with my kid when he's old enough I actually do play a lot of uh, multiplayer games though like you guys I tend not to play with strangers on the internet because I too have been subject to a number of really uncomfortable interactions um, also there goes the fact that you'll never be as good at Halo as a 14 year old boy oh, man. nothing but time <laughs> so, true. so let me tell you how that works out most of the time but I, I did I had a large group of friends and we often used to have sort of a weekly gaming night it's kind of dwindled as we've all you know gotten older and gone separate ways and stuff like that but there's definitely games I do play a decent number of console games I've got an Xbox 360 um, it's dwindled because also that's the we're hitting the end of that life cycle in the product so the, the new fun you know cool games aren't as much coming out for that platform I haven't really decided whether or not I'll take the plunge into a next generation console or not um, I feel like I again there's not a lot of critical mass because I think it would largely depend which way I would go would depend on either really really awesome games coming out for one and not other or all of my friends say investing in a particular ecosystem and since that really hasn't happened yet I've been kind of slowly working my way through the backlog of a variety mm. of games but I really I think the one thing that that consoles do better than most other platforms right now is cooperative gaming um, which I don't think you see as much on there's definitely some on the PC stuff because a lot of that stuff gets developed for for both the consoles and the PC but as a Mac user I don't have as many options there um, but there are a lot of good cooperative titles where it's like I can play with one or two or three of my friends and we can sort of go through like a Diablo 3 or something like that and and play together and it's sort of a social you know uh, activity and I really do enjoy that if it's a really good game I, I also like a lot of the types of genres that Jason mentioned the smaller things puzzle games um, and you know obviously having mobile devices has changed the gaming equation a lot in the last few years because there are a lot more games available on my iPad and my iPhone and they're a lot less of both a time and monetary investment. So um, I, I still enjoy playing games, but I, I do think I'm in sort of a, uh, a dip in that, uh, in that right now. So I haven't been playing as much as I used to. Yeah, I enjoy couch co-op. My daughter and I are playing mm -hmm. Diablo 3 together and some other stuff. So it's great when you know the person <clears throat> you're sitting next to. That's terrific because, yes, you can banter and you can tease back and forth. Uh, but uh, the playing with strangers, I think that's too bad. That I think that was such a great opportunity, particularly with co-op kind of gaming, where you do get turned off by it almost immediately because you're getting taunted by 12-year-olds. And you really wish that they were sitting in front of you and their parents were with them. You know, you could <laughs> say, look what your kid is doing. Could you yeah. please teach the kid some manners? Or if there were sort of like safe zones um, where this is basically what, what they used to do at... Um, at Candlestick Park for the Giants where they had the family section, you know, yeah. so yeah. you can't, like, throw beer on people and swear, um, which was kind of cute. I don't know. If the, I think they killed it because it didn't work. But 
Uh, still, it would be nice to be able to have that kind of gaming experience where you can play because you don't have four people in your room with you um, and do it in kind of a civilized way where people are into the game for the fun of it instead of just showing you how much better they are than you and you're just such an old fart and, uh, and a worm for bothering to try. It's a nice dream, dream big, Chris. Dream big. Yeah. <laughs> Civility in the multiplayer yeah. online game world. All right, we've come to the end. I have one last bonus question for you very quickly because we are running out of time. Uh, this one, going back to the photo leak, intended lightheartedly, is there a photo that you would personally never want to see? I will I will go first just to, to set the stage here. So there's a wonderful picture of me at 12 years old with braces on and a bowl haircut and pimples on my face and one of my pupils totally blown out compared to the other one, which is how I live. One of my pupils is bigger than the other, but in certain light, it's really unattractive. Man, that photographer nailed it. I I hope that picture never leaks, Mom. Yeah, I was going to say anything from the glasses and braces and <laughs> growing out my hair from short to long period, which lasted from about 1990 to about 1992. The glasses and, and braces era. Yeah, the glasses braces <laughs> combo was not a good look for me. Um, I, You know, it's, it's over now. And uh, build character. But yeah, I'm really glad that the photos were all very analog at that time and very few have survived the purge. So yeah, yeah. thankful for that. Uh, I never wore glasses or braces. But let me tell you, I would probably not like that picture of me circa Halloween 1994 dressed up in the homemade Star Trek The Next Generation costume my mom made for me with a beard drawn on my face as Commander Riker. Oh, <laughs> I or maybe that. I would, apparently. Throwback Thursday is <laughs> coming. Amazing. Chris? Uh, yeah, regrettably, that's already out there. Um, <laughs> I recorded a video with my band way back in the day where I was sporting kind of a Rick Ocasek uh, haircut, mm. and uh, it's on YouTube now. So, <laughs> it's, so it's, everything it's already happened. happened. Everything it's is. already happened. Okay, fair enough. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'd like to thank our guest, Susie Oaks. Thank you so much for being thank here you again. For You're one having of our me. favorites. Aww. And Chris Breen, you are also one of our favorites yeah, just all the fine. time. He's all right. <laughs> Thank you for yeah, being well, here. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't play favorites, Jason. This is you're what right. happens. This you're is how right. we lose friends. You're right. And uh, that's it from all of us. So, uh, Dan Morin, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you as always. And you too, Jason. We'll see you next week in Cupertino, I think. Indeed. I look forward all to All right. It. And until then, we remind you, as always, watch what you say. And keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Bye.